Hi, it's Jeff. Stay tuned for my latest interview. The Profitable Podcaster helps coaches, course creators, and authors launch and grow their podcasts to help them build authority, generate more leads, and sell more through actionable advice and expert-tested systems. Joe Casabona has been podcasting for over 10 years and has generated millions of downloads and hundreds of thousands of dollars from his shows. He'll teach you everything he knows. Subscribe today at ProfitablePodcaster.fm or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm joined on the podcast today by Jay Ryan Straddle, author of the new novel, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. New York Times bestselling writer Roxane Gay wrote about the novel. This is a perfect book. Jay Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. It's wonderful to be here. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. and, what a, and what a quote. That was surreal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's an amazing quote. What? If someone hasn't yet heard about your brand new novel, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club, how would you describe the novel? Well, on the surface, it's the story of two restaurant families who become intertwined. One from a family-owned supper club um, lineage, where there's just one building that's been in the family for generations, and the other from a family that owns a chain of homestyle diners, like chains like Perkins or Bob Evans, that kind of thing. So these families intertwine, and over, I guess, four generations, we follow them as they fall in love, lose relatives, and the fortunes of each of these restaurants change. But below that, I'd say it's a novel about legacy, what we leave for the next generation, what that next generation uh, does with it. I became a father while writing this book, so a lot of my experiences and thoughts regarding fatherhood showed up in this book, as well as my partner and I's uh, fertility struggle (laughs) on the road to having this child in the first place. That also ended up in the book. So it's a story about family and food and community, but it was also the book I wanted to read during the pandemic. I wrote most of it. (laughs) <laughs> when I was <laughs> on that kind of unintentional house arrest. Uh, <laughs> so I wasn't able to actually go to supper clubs <laughs> for much, much of the time writing this book. I just had to imagine one and inhabit that. But yeah, I, I, I look at this book as about a lot of things, but ultimately it was the book I wanted to read and a book that I thought would lighten my heart a little bit during a really stressful time. Sure. And do you happen to remember the original idea idea or impetus that led you to writing Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club? Sure. I worked in a supper club as a teenager, um, as a janitor and busboy, and I absolutely love supper clubs. First of all, because our family couldn't afford to eat in them very often. They were special occasion places. Not that they're terribly expensive, but they're usually the best restaurant in the area they're in. And supper clubs are usually in somewhat remote areas, either resort vacation areas or rural farmland. So I grew up in a town called Hastings, Minnesota in southeastern Minnesota that was relatively convenient to a few. But if you live in a major city, they may not be convenient. You may have to drive for an hour out to the country to hit a supper club. Either way, I'm going off on a tangent here, but I was intrigued by these places growing up. There, there was nothing quite like them. First of all, it's the only restaurant I could think of where once you sit down, you get a plate of free food called a relish tray, which is usually, you know, raw vegetables, sometimes pickled herring, olives, <laughs> pickled watermelon rind, that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. you felt like you were a guest at someone's home, not a diner in a restaurant. And I loved it. And, you know, they have full bars. They have a whole scene at the bar of usually locals that, have have their nights or several nights of the week that hang out there. And it's a really valued third place in a community. And, you know, with a couple exceptions, they're not making more of them. I kind of wanted to write about these places and the magic they hold for their community while there were still enough around. You mentioned earlier that this uh, novel covers four generations. Did you find that a challenge at all in, in writing to to write that kind of generational novel? 
yeah, I found it a challenge because the challenge I set up for myself in writing this book was to write a one generation novel that took place over a summer. And uh, because my previous two books were multi-generational family stories, I wanted to pen myself in and just say, Jay Ryan, let's see if you can write a book that takes place over a couple months rather than 30 years or <laughs> 80 years. And no, instead I wrote a book that took place over a hundred years. So yeah, it became a challenge just because I realized every time I introduced a new character, I wanted to get to know them better. And that meant when I was writing and I realized I've just written 20 pages of flashback thinking that needs to be its own chapter and its own timeline. <laughs> yeah. No one wants to read this many pages of italics. <laughs> yeah. It felt like um, I would be doing my characters a disservice if it didn't flush them out fully and let the reader get to know them as I did. And for me, that meant telling their story in their time from their point of view. And yeah, that meant four characters over four point of view characters over almost a hundred years. That's great. Well, what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Oh, wow. What a wonderful question. I've been a writer since I was a kid. I was raised by parents and a mom in particular who really read a lot and valued reading and writing. What really lit the fire under me as a kid was when my mom went back to college and got her English degree when she was 35. And I thought that was an incredibly brave and impressive thing to do. She'd been a waitress at Perkins, which is one of the restaurants Jorby's in my novel is based on, the Homestyle Diner chain. And I was impressed with that because I loved eating at restaurants we couldn't afford too often, and Perkins was pretty cool to me. But when she got that English degree, I saw love blossom in her that I hadn't seen at, at Perkins or at anywhere else in her life. Like she was really doing something she loved and valued. And she got poems published in the College Literary Journal, and I brought them to show and tell. I was so, uh, twice in one year, actually, I, I was so impressed to have a published writer as a mom and she had always wanted to, wanted to write a novel herself. And I thought that's something I, I want to do now. I think I really want to impress her. And unfortunately she passed away at age 54 before she could even begin outlining a novel. But I feel to some extent, I'm trying to have her career for her and trying to honor her legacy and pick up where she left off. And live the life she missed. Mm. So yeah, when I sit down to write, that's what I'm thinking of. And it, but the journey to get to my first published book took some twists and turns. I, as a young writer in my twenties, I mostly wrote stuff. This is when my mom was still alive. I mostly wrote stuff to entertain myself and my friends. I didn't get anything published until after my mom died, but I was writing a lot and I was doing readings. I was reading at live events and Eventually, I had a writing teacher, Lou Matthews, who told me, once you start writing about things that matter to you, your work's going to get a lot better. And after my mom passed away, I took that to heart. Now, I still didn't do that initially. I wrote a novel manuscript in my late 20s that'll never see the light of day. It did, however, teach me the discipline required to write a novel. I learned what sort of work habits I should employ and what sort of boundaries I should effectuate in my life to make writing a novel possible. Those are not small, not small things. So after 10 years of slowly leaning in to my grieving process and slowly leaning into writing about things that mattered to me, first in short stories, I was finally ready to write a novel again in about 2013. This was about eight years after my mom died. And I was still taking writing classes at UCLA Extension, which is something I started doing um, around the time she passed away. And uh, reading a lot of contemporary literary fiction, I thought that was the genre I wanted to write, so I thought I'd better learn about it. I'd better read a lot about it and to know what's happening in it, to find out what I like and find out what's possible. And I learned a lot from that about what contemporary authors were getting away with in terms of narrative structure and character point of view. There were books like A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan, Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, and um, Life After Life by Kate Atkinson that were tremendously influential on me in terms of 
thinking about narrative unconventionally in terms of character point of view and timelines um, and subjectivity. So when I sat down to write Kitchens of the Great Midwest, all I knew about writing a novel was I'd written one before that I couldn't even get a response from agents on. Uh, <laughs> so I expected nothing. I expected I'm going to write this and it's going to fall into the ether once again, like my previous book, but I have to write this. Just have to get it out there. So I wrote every morning before work. At the time, I was a TV producer working on the show Storage Wars Texas, which is a tremendously easy show to produce and edit. <laughs> uh, it only required me to be at the office about five hours a day to do it well. We could have done even less had we chose to do it poorly, but we did it well and we had a great time. Uh, but still, it was a minimal show compared to other shows I worked on in terms of necessary workload. That enabled me to write a novel. Um, every morning, I worked from about 6.30 in the morning till around 10.30. And then every Saturday, I enforced as my day of writing. I would tell my friends, don't invite me to anything. Don't come over. I'm working. And after a couple weeks, they got the idea. And I got a whole year of Saturdays to myself. And then a novel was written in a year. Uh, now, truth be told, this was a novel I'd had in my head since about 2008 or 2009. So... In some ways, it's like the first episode of a, I'm sorry, or like the first uh, season of a TV show where the creators have had their entire lives to come up with this material. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of, it's, it was a little more ready for prime time uh, than my first book was. It was written very impulsively. So my first published book became Kitchens, the Great Midwest. Um, finally sat down and pounded out the book that I'd had hit, sitting in my head for five years. And... You know, I don't have an MFA. All I had was those writing classes at UCLA Extension in terms of literary contacts. But I had been volunteering at 826 LA and been hosting a reading series there as a fundraiser. So I had met authors by virtue of booking them for these fundraising events. And I had been a uh, seat in the crowd quite often before I'd been a face at the microphone and I felt like I can reach out to some of these authors and ask them for information about their agents. Um, and yeah, qu quite a number of them were helpful. I was able to get responses from agents this time. In fact, multiple agents contacted me and said they would be interested in representing me. And I, I flew to New York City and met two of them. And I, it was a very difficult decision to choose, but I did choose my current agent, Ryan Harbage, after meeting him and. um He's been my agent ever since. He had a pretty clear idea where he could sell kitchens, and he was right about it. I learned then that agents don't take authors because they like throwing darts at a wall. They'll accept a manuscript because they know exactly who's interested in it already. Uh, <laughs> like anyone else, they uh, like their time to be well used, and fortunately, he had a pretty good notion of how and where to sell my first book. And I, I chose to work with Pam Dorman at Viking, and I've been working with her ever since. Uh, it's been a wonderful home for my work, and uh, she's been very supportive. So this third book is also edited by her and uh, Jeremy Orton uh, at Pam Dorman Books. And, yeah, I just can't believe it. It just felt like, you know... Uh, nothing happens until everything happens all at once, uh, uh, whatever that cliche is. Right. Uh, just so many years of just being in the wilderness of having the occasional shorts. First of all, like no short stories published my entire life till I was 30. And then uh, about a decade of the occasional short story here and there. And now in my 40s, uh, novels. Um, but yeah, it doesn't feel like anything happened overnight. It felt like the 10 years... I spent between writing my um, unsuccessful novel manuscript and my successful one. There's a lot of invisible sweat equity in there in terms of taking the writing classes, hosting the reading series, reading books in my genre exhaustively, uh, pub, uh, writing and publishing and being rejected uh, for short stories and uh, making friends in the writing community, going to things like AWP, um, volunteering at booths, volunteering as a um, 
volunteering to read the slush piles at literary publications, uh, taking a small stipend to edit uh, at an independent press, all that kind of stuff. Just working my way up, you know. Um, uh, without the MFA, I thought I've got to make my own community, and I live in a city large enough, Los Angeles, where there's a very robust fiction community. Surprisingly so. Not everyone's working on a TV show either. A lot of them are, and God bless them. But uh, there's plenty of authors out here who are making a living at it. And I find them almost invariably to be extremely kind, generous, and wise people. So when someone comes to me and I recognize, hey, they're in the spot I was 10 or 15 years ago, I, I do my best to uh, help them out as much as I can. Because especially us without MFAs, we kind of have to look out for each other. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what was your writing process when you were working on this novel? Are you someone who is a meticulous plotter, or do you just have the idea and kind of dive into the narrative to see where it takes you? How does that work for you? I'm more of a pantser than a plotter, or I have been historically. So with this book, I sat down to um, write a story about a woman who was going to go pick up her mom from church and then change her mind and not pick up her mom at church and have the mom waiting at church for an indefinite period of time. That was the germ of the idea for this book. So I wanted to write a funny book, like a humorous kind of, not, 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 not a satire per se, but a, um, a more lighthearted look at Midwestern life. It was such a difficult time. I didn't want to write a book about trials and tribulations. <laughs> I ended up putting quite a few in the book after all, but uh, the book I sat down to write was going to be an escapist romp. And then I find that on the way to pick up her mom, Mariel hits a deer. This all happens right at the beginning of the book, so it's not a spoiler. Right. And then she meets an unexpected stranger who takes her life in a new direction. Now, I didn't know any of that when I sat down to write. I just came up with that. I thought I got to have something happen to her. Uh, give her a reason why she can't go to church. She's already starting to think about just not going. And I could just have her turn around and go home. But I thought, nah, I want circumstance to play a role here. I want a third person to come in and form this triangle. You know, that always gets things moving, that third person do a scene. Um, but then I also thought, I still want it to be her decision. Like in spite of these things, she's still thinking, how am I going to get there? How am I going to get my mom? You know, and feel some degree of guilt about it. So, uh, because that to me is such a Midwestern thing. Like when um, Mariel first hits the deer and blacks out and wakes up and finds her car on the side of the road, her first thought is that she's dead. And then she, her next thought after that is, then who's going to pick up my mom? Uh, <laughs> and to me, that's just Mariel to a T. And that's a lot of people I knew. Uh, growing up in Minnesota. So I started there. You know, I started with these moments that I thought would draw Mariel out, these challenges visited upon her that would exhume <laughs> uh, some contours of her character that normal life wouldn't reveal and set her loose. And the plot proceeded from there. Uh, from there, I decided to get into her mother's life a bit, extrapolating. Um, who this woman was. Spelling that out, I decided to start an early childhood, exploring some of the traumas and guilt that fueled her adult paranoia and sense of, um, what's the word, self-preservation that some people would view as extreme selfishness or even narcissism that she would simply view as uh, survival. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, where, where would someone with such attitudes come from and i decided i need i need her to tell that story i don't want that story to come from someone else's point of view in order for the reader to have a fighting chance of understanding and maybe even liking this character i need her to tell her own story you still may not like her but at least you'll understand her so that's how it all started uh thanks for the open-ended question i rarely get to talk in detail about these kinds of things because normally questions are much more specific but in this format Jeff, I really appreciate it. Um, sure. Yeah. So that, that that's how it started. And then I ended up having to take three and a half years to write the book because <laughs> up 
I'm going to plot my next book. I'm going to tell you that I'm, I'm outlining it. I, I'm tired of, of just searching through a forest for mushrooms. I, it, it, it just takes too long. <laughs> I, I, I love the result, but it takes me longer to get there. I think than it, I think I'm ready to be a plotter now. <laughs> have you, have you started thinking about or working on your next novel yet? Yeah, I've started thinking about it and taking notes on it. I haven't started writing it yet just because, well, this book's coming out. I've had a lot of work to do for that. And sure. Tree fell on my house and that's been, that's caused a lot of upheaval for my family. And I talked to a fellow writer named Charmaine Craig, who had a house fire, knocked her out of her house for 18 months. And she said, I didn't write a word during that whole time. Don't feel bad if you don't. And it was really reassuring to hear because there's just so much going on. And a lot of it is not conducive to writing. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll see. I do plan to get to it. Maybe when I'm on the road. I write when I'm on the road all the time. I write in airplane seats, in Ubers, in, you know, airplane terminals, uh, hotel rooms. I've be, Since becoming a dad, even before, but especially since becoming a dad, I've become very unsentimental and less particular about my writing scenario. I sure. write when I can, like, which quite often, as the father of a small child is, when they're sleeping. And that is when it is. <laughs> Yeah. I used to be a morning writer, but I'm not waking up before this guy. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> he's, uh, <laughs> yeah, he challenged my notions of what an early riser is. So yeah, uh, I've been there. Writer. Yeah. And I've become a night writer and I've become a provisional writer. And I don't think my writing has suffered because of it. If anything, it's become more focused because you've got these smaller bursts of time uh, that you need to concentrate the writing into. So I shut off the distractions a lot more readily. You know, you've always heard that cliche that all you need to do to get something done is, well, what's that Leonard Bernstein quote about that? Like a plan and not quite enough time. Yeah. Just some sort of <laughs> obstacle, like in your way to work around, whether if it's a job or a family, you know, not that those are merely obstacles, but something that fo- uh, forces you to focus, especially in this world where, hey, I'm writing on the same device I can use to access all the world's information. Right. And- <laughs> And uh, I'm a sports fan, you know, like, do I tab over to see how the twins are doing? No, I do not. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. game will proceed with or without me. Yeah. What writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Oh, wow. Uh, well, follow the enthusiasm, first of all. <clears throat> One of the things that's worked best for me when I sit down and I'm looking at document one on word i use word still that blank page is i don't start at the beginning that's just too much pressure um that was one one lesson i learned from writing that first failed manuscript that'll never exist in the world is i spent over three months writing the first page thinking this this could be all someone reads or this could be just what i send out with the query so this has got to be tight and looking back on it, it is pretty tight. It's a really excellent introductory set of paragraphs for a novel. It's a terrible novel, but I, did, <laughs> but I did start it well. Unfortunately, it took me way too much time to do. So when I sat down to write my second manuscript, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, I started in the middle. I started with the parts I was most excited to write, having premeditated what those were, having plotted that book out a bit more than my subsequent books. I started with a chapter that I was eager to hop into. And that's how I continued to do it. I wrote completely out of sequence. I saved the last chapter. I'm sorry, I saved uh, the first chapter for the end. And by then, the first chapter, well, there was only so many directions it could take. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it was forced to presage a story that proceeded from it. So... Yeah, it, I ended up being very unsentimental about it because ultimately that first chapter had to set up a book that existed already. And there was only so many directions I could go and so many um, <laughs> ways I could overthink it. Uh, so that worked for me. I, I, I've done that ever since. I've usually saved right in the beginning uh, until the end. And if I do write an opening chapter before I get to the end of the book, if I do end up feeling like writing it earlier on, 
I'll go back to it. I won't sit there like I had done and try to get it perfect. You know, try to sit there until I get the opening perfect. I'll go, I'll come back to it. I've really learned to value and adore revision. That to me is where the novel gets written. I use this analogy a lot, but to me, writing a novel is like going to the grocery store is your first draft, buying groceries. The second draft is you picking out what you bought at the grocery store that you're going to cook that night for dinner. And so it's a winnowing process for me. But not every writer is a pantser. Not every writer overwrites like I do. This is just what works for me. I throw everything out and I chisel it down again and again and again until I have the shortest version of the manuscript ever, which is the published novel. (laughs) What novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, wow. Quite a few. I really loved They're Going to Love You by Meg Howery. That's a really exquisite book. Exquisite book. She's a former professional ballet dancer. I, she, I know she doesn't have a college degree, let alone an MFA. She went straight from an arts high school into professional ballet, which she did until her mid, mid to late 30s. So she had an extremely long career. Um, and this, I believe, is her fourth book, fourth novel. Near the end of her dance career, she decided... She's always been a big reader, a huge reader, and decided I want to take a crack at this and write a novel. And her novels are excellent. And the new one is the best one yet. It's marvelous. Uh, it's set in the world of ballet in New York. <laughs> so, yeah, the apple's falling pretty close to the tree, but you can tell. <laughs> the attention to detail is, detail is exquisite. It takes on some heavy themes, but it also has its funny moments. It's just a wonderful read. Um I'm currently reading The Overstory by Richard Powers, which is marvelous. I hadn't read it yet. I'm kind of savoring it. I'm down to the last 40 pages, and I'm reading like five a night now just to make it last longer. Um, and before then, oh boy, um, what have I... I really enjoyed Hello Beautiful by Anne Napolitano. It's a marvelous book. I'm so glad to see the attention it's getting because I think it's richly deserved. That was wonderful. I thought... Uh, Share Me and Major Whittlesey uh, was 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 just that's a book set in World War One. I. I didn't know that there was an actual um, like homing pigeon <laughs> that <laughs> that did missions during World War One, and this is a historical fiction about that book uh, about that bird in the platoon it assisted by uh, Kathleen Rooney, who wrote Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk. This I liked even better than Lillian Boxfish. I know that book got more attention, but Cherami to me is a, oh man, it's a superior piece of work. There's not a hair out of place in that book. That to me is one of the most underrated books of the last couple of years. More people need to read that one. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? Oh, I guess they can start at my website, jryanstraddle.com. Pretty easy to find. I've got an unusual name. I don't think anyone else in the world has it. So if you Google me, you'll come up with some stuff. I can't speak for all of it. Uh, But yeah, there it is. It's there. I think everything I've published that's still available online is linked to on my website. Some links may be dead by now that I haven't noticed, but I try to go back in there and make sure that the links are still active um, every so often. But yeah, that's it. Yeah. And uh, I guess I'm on Twitter and Instagram and all that kind of stuff. Um, So you can find me there too. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking to Jay Ryan Straddle, author of the new novel Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. The novel is available now. So go buy a copy. And Jay Ryan, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, Jeff, thanks so much for the wonderfully open-ended and thoughtful questions. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners and talk to a reader and writer like you. Thank you. Thank you. One. Mariel, 1996. Mariel Prager believed in heaven, 
because she'd been there once, so far. She'd like to report that it looks an awful lot like Minnesota. The next best place to heaven, in her experience, was a type of restaurant found in the upper Midwest called a supper club. When she walked into a good one, she felt both welcome and somewhere out of time. The decor would be old-fashioned, the drinks would be strong, and the dining experience would evoke beloved memories, all for a pretty decent price. Since she was a kid, Mariel had spent countless days at Floyd and Betty's Lakeside Supper Club on scenic Bear Jaw Lake, Minnesota. The place wasn't particularly scenic itself, just a one-story brown wooden building with bright red front doors and tall windows on the side facing the lake. The sign outside read, Fine Dining at a Fine Value Since 1919. And because everyone trusts Neon, fulfilling that promise was the duty of the owner, which for the past two weeks had been Mariel. On her watch, a proper supper club meal began with a free relish tray and basket of bread, followed by a round of brandy old fashions, and then a lavish amount of hearty cuisine, with fish on Fridays, prime rib on Saturdays, and grasshoppers for dessert. Before he died, Mariel's grandpa Floyd had told her that she was ready to take over sole ownership. But this morning, she wished that someone else, anyone else, were in charge instead. After locking the front door of her house, Mariel wanted to hurl her body into the lake and float away. For a long time, she'd simply managed the lakeside's bar. It was a job she'd kept since becoming the owner, because it was the greatest watering hole in the North. It was loud and smoky. Her hands were never dry. She never sat down. And she loved it. Every summer weekend, the horseshoe-shaped bar and its wood-paneled lounge were packed with people fresh from fishing boats and softball games and cars that had driven up from the cities. It was a place where people chose to be on the most memorable nights of their lives. And it was a pleasure to be at the center of it all. After what happened last night, though, she wasn't up for any of it. But that didn't matter. If she wasn't standing behind the bar when it opened at 5 p.m., people would talk. Mariel's quiet, peaceful commute to work had always been her favorite part of the day. From door to door, it took exactly 54 seconds, the time it takes to make a perfect old-fashioned, to walk at an ordinary pace down her driveway, across a county road, up the gravel shoulder, and into the paved parking lot. It had her two favorite smells, the sharp, earthy tang of pine trees on one end and the stubborn mix of stale cigarette smoke and fry grease on the other, smells she'd always associated with belonging and pleasure. If she spotted an animal en route, she'd give it a name, like that day, when she saw a squirrel she named Pronto. Most important, if she could make it from home to the supper club without any interruption, it'd be a good day, guaranteed. The day before, her husband Ned stopped her in the driveway to kiss her before he left for the weekend, and it had been the worst day in a long time. That morning, Mariel almost made it. She was a few steps into the lakeside's parking lot when someone ruined her day. Mariel! A woman's voice bellowed from a white station wagon. It was Hazel the oldest of her regulars from the bar. Mariel sighed and turned to face her. How you doing, Hazel? Better than I deserve, Hazel replied. So where'd you go last night? You just up and vanished on us. I was feeling sick, so I went home early. That's all Hazel needed to know. Oh, jeez, food poisoning? Mariel just decided to nod. Hazel responded with a brief, exaggerated grimace. Well, you look all right today. By the way, nice t-shirt. Mariel had to look down to remember what she was wearing. It was a Bruce Springsteen concert shirt from 16 years ago. Maybe the last time she'd been to a concert. Thanks. Well, I should get to work. One more thing. Your mother called me. She needs a ride home from church and wants to know if you can do it. Mariel hadn't seen her mother for more than a decade. 
until two weeks before at Floyd's burial and wake. They'd made eye contact, briefly, but still hadn't spoken to each other. Why didn't she just call me? Mariel asked. She said she tried three times, and it rang and rang. Mariel had been to see her doctor that morning, so it's possible her mother's claim was true. But when she'd been at home, no one had called. Why can't whatever friend she's staying with just drive her? The last Mariel heard, her mother had been hopping around the guest rooms of various childhood friends since Floyd's funeral. The fact that Florence hadn't gone back home to Winona by now was unsettling. Something was up. She specifically wanted you. Hazel looked pleased, which was a bad sign. I've known your mom for 60 years. It's time, Mariel. At our age, none of us knows how much time we have. Mariel hated it when older people played that card, especially on behalf of other older people. In her experience, it was true of everyone, at every age. I'll think about it. Was she really going to do this today? She noticed a yellow-bellied sapsucker in the tree above, its red-capped head darting around, no doubt planning even further destruction of her trees in its godless little mind. Then she noticed another, one branch above. Maybe they were gathering their forces and would soon descend in acute fog of pestilence and wipe out the forests, the buildings, the people, everything. Then it would be a lot quieter around here, and she could finally have a relaxing Saturday. Don't think too long, Hazel laughed. Can't keep Florence Stenerud waiting. Despite not living anywhere near Bearjaw for 50 years, Mariel's mother was still widely known, somehow loved and often feared there. It was well known that anyone who disappointed Florence in the slightest Anyone who inconvenienced her or failed to meet her expectations would have a swarm of baseless rumors unleashed after them in retaliation. Consequently, Mariel was certain that not collecting her mother in a timely fashion from the Our Savior's Lutheran Church pancake breakfast would mean half the town would soon hear that Mariel had been badly injured in a car accident or was trapped beneath a fallen tree or had caught a rare incurable illness or was getting a divorce or some heady cocktail of the above. Mariel checked her watch. It was 10 o'clock. How long do I have, Hazel? The pancake breakfast goes until 11, but she'd like to be picked up by 10.30. Okay, I'll do it. Mariel said, surprising even herself. When thinking of how she'd eventually speak with her mother, Mariel had long imagined a tear-streaked deathbed reconciliation, followed by a few decades of regret, and that sounded fine. But maybe it was time, as Hazel said. Mariel was bound for a bad day anyway. The actual town of Bearjaw was seven miles from Bearjaw Lake, in a move the region's invasive Europeans clearly did to confuse future tourists, of which there were now many. At this hour, at least most tourists and lake people were at their cabins, so traffic into town wouldn't be unbearable. Besides a green Borgland Services septic truck up ahead of her, the only other person Mariel had seen going her way was a 50-ish woman with bright silver-streaked hair on a silver bicycle. Mariel's car radio was playing an interesting song about a guy who wanted to be killed because he was a loser. She flipped through the stations until she landed on a song by Mariah Carey, which was fine, or at least better. Mariel had actually braced herself to speak with her mom at the funeral. There was just never a moment when Florence was standing alone without people around. Over the years, there were times she'd felt an urge to call, when a normal, well-adjusted person would have called a normal, well-adjusted mother. But Mariel could never bring herself to do it. Two weeks ago, Mariel had important news. News she didn't want her mother receiving from another source. She was pregnant. Or had been. Until last night. She hadn't told her husband yet. Ned was still down in the cities, watching ball games with his college buddies through the weekend. 
She would wait. Ned saw Tim, Eric, and Doug only once or twice a year, and she didn't want to ruin his good time with them. Her doctor, Teresa Eaton, had said if a miscarriage happened, it would likely occur in the first 12 weeks. Hers happened at six weeks and two days, at work, right after the kitchen closed. She'd seen spotting earlier that day and called Teresa, who said it was normal. See you in a few days, Teresa had said to check for the heartbeat. But that night, as Mariel was making a Midori sour for a customer, she started feeling a sudden stabbing pain. She ran to the bathroom, locked the stall door, and sat down, her head spinning. It felt like her insides fell out. She knew before she could bring herself to look. Her entire body wanted to scream. She put her fist in her mouth and cried as quietly as possible to not bother anyone. Once she cleaned up, Mariel snuck out the back without telling anybody. She'd apologize later and tell everyone she got sick, she told herself. Mariel thought of her two seasonal bar employees and hoped they wouldn't think poorly of her. As she pushed the rear door open, she'd never felt colder or lonelier. Outside, she smelled fresh cigarette smoke. She was relieved to see it was Big Al, who'd been a chef at the lakeside since before Mariel was born. Once, she'd wanted to be a chef herself, and Floyd and Big Al had taught her how to cook everything that kitchen served. He was probably the closest thing she had to family, apart from Ned. Leaving early? Big Al asked, surprised. Stomach bug, she told him, intentionally looking away. If he saw her face, he'd know she was lying. Why had she told him about the pregnancy so early? She knew better, but she'd been so happy, and that was impossible to hide from him, too. Need me to close up? Yeah, she said, but couldn't keep the sadness from her voice. Oh, no, he said, as if he knew. She almost broke down and told him everything. Instead, she apologized and walked home in the dark. Maybe she wouldn't tell anyone. She'd lost a baby, but that's not the way most people would see it. They'd respond in ways that would be crushing. They'd hug her and say, it just wasn't meant to be. They'd say, it happens all the time. They'd say, you can try again. They'd say that her friend Kathy's mom had nine miscarriages over 25 years. But they didn't know all that Mariel and Ned had been through just to have this single, brief pregnancy. And Kathy's mom had seven kids. Mariel had none. What was most devastating was that Mariel had been fine without a child. And she would have been, indefinitely, she knew it. For years, it was just Ned and her, and everything was good. Once they decided to have a baby, it was all Mariel could think about. Even after learning about each of their fertility issues and how difficult it would be, after all the time and money spent and procedures they endured, here she was. Not back to where she started, because there's no such thing. Her body would either bear a child or bear a loss. Either way, the space was made. Unspoken then, the loss burned through her memories, desperate for blame. She'd found one culprit. Mariel never touched the bar garnishes other than to serve them. But Friday night, two hours before the miscarriage, she felt suddenly hungry. And with her usual healthy snacks 20 feet away in her office, she lazily ate three green maraschino cherries. For months, she'd ingested only things that were specifically good for fertility and never touched anything artificial. Much later, she'd find out that they wouldn't have made a difference. But that didn't matter then. It was her single break from a routine. Now all the green cherries were in the trash and would never appear in her bar again. It was all because of those cherries, she'd told herself. It wasn't that Ned's sperm had almost no motility or that she had a vanishing number of follicles. It wasn't the extra pounds they carried or the excessive alcohol they'd once drunk 
or the fact that she was almost 39. She could forgive her faulty, mutinous body and move on, because she must. But until then, she'd tell no one. Mariel was sure that if her mother ever found out that she'd miscarried, Florence would subject her to a blizzard of reasons why it was Mariel's fault. And that was the last thing she needed. For the first time since she'd agreed to pick up her mother, Mariel wondered why she was in such a hurry. On the radio, Mariah Carey was singing about how a baby will always be a part of her, and the love between her and the baby will never die. Mariel had heard this song a thousand times, but now it was obvious. The person who wrote this song had lost a child. And oh boy, she could hear in Mariah's voice that she wanted a baby again. Mariel glanced down to change the station, and when she looked back up, she saw the most beautiful deer running across the road, a flawless Terry Redland 10-point buck. The instant she pressed the brake, she heard and felt a loud thump and saw that perfect deer flip in the air and vanish. Then everything went black. Where was she? Mariel unclenched her hands from the steering wheel and opened her eyes. Her car was idling and on the shoulder, but she didn't remember pulling over. Was she dead? Someone else would have to pick up Florence. What an inane first thought as a dead person. Maybe this was hell. Or, less intriguingly, maybe she wasn't dead after all. Mario looked in the mirrors. No vehicles were coming from either direction. She didn't notice her neck was sore until she bent over while exiting her car. When she surveyed the front of her little blue Dodge, she saw the passenger side headlight and turn signal were smashed. There were scrapes on the front of the wheel well, and part of the radiator grill was busted. But then something else seized her attention. The handsome deer was in a ditch at the roadside, twitching, bleeding. Two of its legs snapped like candy canes broken in their wrappers. It was clear he wasn't going to bolt out of there. Looking in his dark eyes, she could tell he knew that he was going to die. Someone needed to kill him and ease that awful pain. If no one else came by anytime soon, it looked like that was going to have to be Mariel. In northern Minnesota, a lot of people had something in their vehicle capable of executing a large mammal. She and Ned were not those kinds of people. Riffling through the trunk, she found only a plastic gallon jug of water, a quilt, jumper cables, a jerry can of gasoline, an unopened box of Thin Mints, and a bottle of antifreeze. Not even a knife. She looked at the deer and thought about taking the jumper cables and whipping it in the head until it died. But that seemed difficult and gross. Instead, she lifted the old red jerry can by the handle. It was mostly full, so it was heavy enough. Mariel watched the deer's twitching face and wondered if she could bludgeon its skull with this can. For what felt like a long time, she stood there, holding the can of gasoline, apologizing to the deer as the lovely, broken creature struggled to breathe. Then she heard a woman's voice behind her. What are you going to do, light it on fire? Jesus H. Christ. Mariel turned and saw a middle-aged woman hop off a silver bicycle. Mariel recognized her, she was certain, but couldn't place her name. Up close, the woman's face was wrinkled, gorgeous, and unapologetic. And the silver in her long brown hair glinted in the sun like Christmas tree garland. The woman took a deep breath as she stared at the deer and then looked at Mariel. There's a fair amount of decent meat on that idiot. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, Mariel nodded, even though it was definitely not what she was thinking. She'd never thought of deer as idiots before, and playing the sentence again in her head made her laugh. The woman seemed to be amused, too. Where'd you hit him? I don't know, I think the legs? The woman unzipped her light jacket, revealing a gray tank top and a tool belt, and unsheathed a black-handled gut-hook buck knife. 
She approached the deer from behind its back and cut its throat in one quick motion. A quality tool saves you time and money, the woman said, as if that should be the obvious moral of this entire scene. She wiped the blade off on the back of the dead animal. And right then, Mariel decided she wanted to be friends with this woman. Her name was Brenda Kowalski, and it turned out that she lived just a mile away. I'll get my son to come help me field dress this thing, she said, meaning the deer. I'm gonna go home and call him. You stay here to tell people you got dibs. Mariel waited there about 15 minutes for Brenda or her son to show up, while Florence Jean Stenerud continued waiting in the sun-dappled lobby of Our Saviors for her ride. At best, Mariel wouldn't get to the church until around 10.45 at this point. She reminded herself that either way, she wasn't responsible for her mom's dissatisfaction. It wasn't like the woman was abandoned in the Gobi Desert. She was surrounded by her oldest friends in an air-conditioned building full of strong coffee and breakfast food. Her mother could certainly stand to wait another 30 minutes in that environment. Mariel checked to see if her car was okay to drive, and it seemed to be, so long as she wouldn't need both headlights. She'd just killed the engine when a shiny Ram pickup truck stopped beside her. The driver was a clean-cut young man whose chiseled face she recognized. He worked at the town's funeral home. Brenda waved from the passenger seat. Kyle wants to know if you want the heart. It took Mariel a second to wrap her head around that sentence. She hadn't even considered that she'd get any of the venison, and she told them so. I figure you're doing all the work, she explained. You're the one who hit it, Brenda said. By rights, the meat's yours. My son will even butcher it for you right now if you want to come over. You're not in a hurry, are you? Seeing this loving mother and her grown, helpful son, Mariel thought of Florence. Nope, Mariel said. She followed Brenda and Kyle down a long dirt road, farther and farther from the town, the church, and her mother, toward a vast green farm she'd never seen before. Immediately, something about this place whispered to her, and she knew. She wouldn't be leaving anytime soon.